This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here with Professor Dr. John Hostler, the Department of Military History's medievalist. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Also with us is Dr. Bill Nance. Glad to be here. And we're here today to talk about a subject that is both very interesting across history and is also um, controversial in many ways, and that is the history of the city of Jerusalem. And again, uh, Dr. Hostler is a medievalist, so our discussion will probably take that kind of that direction, um, but we're going to range kind of across it. Uh, so, Dr. Hostler, if, if you'll start off and give us kind of a quick rundown on the history of this city, Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem, obviously one of the oldest cities in the world, um, dating back to the pages of the Old Testament and before that, uh, and so it's always been in the in the public eye. Um, not just in you know one continent or another, but around the world. Um, most um, major um, religious traditions recognize the significance of, of Jerusalem, even if they don't have holy sites there. Uh, and so because it's sort of this, this area that, that everyone knows about that has been around for so long and has been controversial for so long, uh, it's one of those natural um, urban histories that, that people seem to be interested in. Um, it's always in the news one way or another, and I would argue has always been in the news for at least 1,500 years, if not longer. Um, so very ancient place, started with very modest uh, beginnings, like, like most cities do, uh, probably no more than, than a fort, uh, than, than an outpost, and then eventually grew into something much bigger and much more significant. Uh, what's interesting about Jerusalem, though, is if you look at the modern Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's huge. It's the biggest city in Israel. And, uh, and you know, obviously has, has a big population and, and lots of tall buildings and all the things you would think about with, an, with a city. Uh, but the old part of Jerusalem has stayed r- relatively the same for several centuries, or what's called the old city, the city within the city of Jerusalem. And that has uh, a de- definite border around it with walls, with uh, sites next to it that have been recognized as sort of adjacent sites forever, like the, the Mount of Olives, for example, the Kidron Valley. Um, and that area has remained um, sort of static in terms of its size. And so when you go to Jerusalem, it's looking at a couple different places. You're seeing this, this vast modern landscape, but then you're walking around a city that, that feels ancient. Um, it still has that size. And you don't find a lot of other places in the world like that that go back as far. Um, example might be you know, you're wandering around the Roman Forum or something like that, and certain, certainly that's old. Uh, but the way it sort of bleeds into the rest of town, uh, Jerusalem, you walk in, you see these walls, and you say, there's the old city, here's the not old city. Uh, and so that makes it an interesting place. Uh, it's got a long history and a, and a definite look uh, so that when people walk in, even if they know nothing about it, you can get a sense that uh, important things have happened here. Um, just by looking at the landscape and looking at the, the, the physical attributes of the town. So Jerusalem's had this long religious significance. Uh, it's uh, got significance to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, but it's also important because of its regional location. So what kind of came first? Was it its strategic location of where it is? It, or is it its religious significance, which kind of gives Jerusalem that flavor? So the religious significance definitely comes later. Uh, it is a, a more or less a, a military outpost. Uh, some have argued that it's been a seat of some uh, regional leader, uh, but it, it seems to have had a, a secular purpose be- long before it had a religious purpose. Right? Um, it doesn't attain the real religious purpose uh, if you believe in the writings of the Old Testament really until the Davidic line comes along and, and makes the city important. Uh, there were things going on there before. Uh, there may have been more going on there before, even in terms of religious display than, than we know. Uh, but, but that's sort of when, you, when it becomes prominent, and that's in the 11th century BC. 
Uh, so time before that is going to be you know, mostly for other other ideas. But but it's it's interesting. You, you mentioned strategic position. One of the you know, jokes about Jerusalem is that it is in probably the worst strategic position in the region. It, it sits on no major trade routes. It is um, 40 some kilometer, well, 40 some miles from the Mediterranean coastline. So it, it doesn't have sea access. It's surrounded by rugged hills and has um, water supplies, but but not abundant water supplies. Uh, and so it's this diversion from the road. It's uh, the, way, the way I liken it is you're driving down the freeway and you say, I need to stop for gas, right? And the sign says, I'm going to stop, you know, there's a gas station. And you pull off and, and it turns out the gas station is actually 10 miles away on the exit, right? Jerusalem's kind of like that. You have these major trade routes going past and you really have to um, sort of deliberately make your way over there. It's not in an, in an obvious crossing site. And so it's one of these few places that is in a, uh, a very poor strategic location, but has figured so heavily into the strategy of wars nonetheless. Yeah, I, I think it, it's what you've explained probably helps to show why Jerusalem didn't really develop in the same way many Levantine cities like a Tyre or a Sidon did, because it's, it, it, is a, it is on a hill, kind of the mm. oldest par- portion of it. But it is not really in a place that matters all that much if you're looking at it from just a geostrategic position. So that might help to explain why it doesn't evolve until after the Bronze Age collapse of the 13th century BCE. Right. And I think when, you know, in, as the Davidic kings develop it into, um, into a capital, uh, into a fortified city, and then it, it starts to take on that sort of importance, but does not have it initially. And it's interesting, even in later conquests, when you get into the Middle Ages, certainly it has the religious significance, but it is not one of the prime strategic outposts of, say, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, or even when you get into the, um, the later periods, the Ayyubids in Egypt, for example, it's an important city, uh, but not that important. And the, the kind of the crowning example I would give would be um, the events of, um, of the 1240s, where well, well, actually to back up really the 12 teens, where the Egyptians are in control of the city and they know that the Crusaders are coming because you've had these, these multiple waves of, um, of invasions coming your direction. Uh, and so to reduce the specter of Jerusalem, to make it a less tempting target, uh, the Ayyubids actually, they destroy the walls of the city. They, they take all the walls down and render it defenseless. With the idea being that, well, if, it, if it's not even a, a defensible outpost, then, then nobody's going to want to come here because you might grab the city, but you're, you're not going to be able to hold the city, right? Um, and, and that bears out in some in some respects. And the idea is, well, I would like to go to Jerusalem, but it's, it's really dangerous, so I, I, I think I'll pass this time around, right? There's some resonances of that, even if you go back to the Old Testament, um, where you look at, for example, the book of Nehemiah, and you talk about the, the Jews coming out of the Babylonian captivity, and they come to a Jerusalem that is without its walls, right? Uh, without protection, it, it really, it, the city is, is much less important. Uh, always has that religious significance, of course. Uh, but strategically, the walls have to be there. And even with the walls, it's still not that strategically important. Uh, particularly in the period that I'm looking at. It's much more the religious aspect and then um, I would say sort of the, the political aspect, the idea that if you hold it, uh, you can claim a title, you can you can say something about yourself or about your people by having it. Um, but, but certainly it is not one of the prime outposts. The cities you mentioned uh, are much more important because they're on along the coastline, uh, along with places like Tripoli, Beirut, uh, if you get down into Egypt, Alexandria, and, and especially Cairo, uh, once you get past the 10th century. And then the other thing I would add is that right by Jerusalem, not right by it, but relatively close by, is the city of Damascus. And that is kind of the, the throbbing heartbeat of that immediate region. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I, I think, so you mentioned this idea of, of religious center over geostrategic center. So we are starting that process with Jerusalem as a cultic center for Jews. As, as Judaism develops in the Levantine region, there's lots of debate over, over the history of that period. We don't have a lot of uh, empirical evidence of it, but we know there is a Jewish cultic center in Jerusalem by at least 1000 BCE. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying is that that's developing into what we would recognize as the classical period. So do we see any attention paid to the city by the Macedonians, by the post-Alexander Greeks, by the Romans? 
Oh, sure. I mean, people are interested in it, um, even if they're, you know, especially if they're, if they're not Jewish, right? The uh, Alexander claims the city, does nothing to it, leaves it alone. Um, his successors, however, are going to treat it in uh, radically different ways uh, to the point where, you know, even going up the Temple Mount and expelling the Jews and putting, um, you know, Greco-Roman cults, you know, to, to, to Zeus Jupiter on the spot. The Romans, after um, allowing Jewish worship there through the New Testament days, uh, eventually after the Bar Kokhba revolt of the second century, will um, will just reduce it entirely and, and, and place a Roman colony on top of it, uh, Alia Capitolina. So there are these, these groups, they'll come through and they will, um, they will claim those sites and use them for other purposes. Um, and then some, it's kind of just nonchalance. You know, you mentioned Alexander. Um, the other one, I, I suppose, would be um, uh, Pompey, who wants to see inside the temple because he's heard so many great things about it, looks inside and says, uh, you, you got an altar, you got you got something, This I, I don't see what the big deal is, and, and, and kind of leaves, right? I, I'm underwhelmed. Compared to the glories of Rome, this is nothing, right? So all different kinds of reactions, people who want to claim it, people who want to sustain it, people who ignore it, uh, people who, frankly, you wonder, did they even realize uh, that the temple is there and that there's a significance? Yeah, so we've got we've got this situation where we know this city matters a great deal to Jews, but we also have the Jewish diaspora. So Judaism is spread across the Mediterranean and, and east, north, south, etc. And we've had we have these Greeks and then Romans who come, and as you mentioned, they do treat it differently. Um, and and the two great events I think that launch us into the post-calendar change of Jerusalem's history are the, the Jewish revolts. Mm. So could you give us a little bit of information first on the great Jewish revolts of the first century and then the Bar Kokhba revolts of the following century, just so we have this background? Right. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about two, two revolts that revolve around, I suppose, similar complaints, um, Roman oppression, uh, Roman subjugation of peoples, cultures, uh, these sorts of things. The first one is the most famous uh, because it's the um, it leads to the great siege of Masada and um, and three years before that the destruction of the temple by Titus, who eventually uh, becomes emperor, the son of Vespasian. Um, and so there you have that you know the Jewish zealots who kind of you know, burst out and um, and opposing Roman rule, defying Roman wishes, arguing for, for their rights. Uh, and they are hunted down fairly ruthlessly, as was the Roman way, uh, across Judea and, um, and stamped out. Uh, the, the second revolt uh, falls on, on some similar lines, although there you have a charismatic leader, um, um, uh, Simon, son of a star, uh, who is going to, to lead the people up. And, um, and it's actually, in some ways, um, of greater magnitude. Uh, the numbers suggested in the sources are, are in the hundreds of thousands of, of, of those killed uh, as the Romans crack down on that revolt. Uh, and we've also found a number of interesting uh, remains from these uh, Jewish outposts in the um, out in the in the high country, caves that they occupied and that their personal effects are still there. The British Museum put some of these on display a few years ago, um, and so widespread you know kind of discontent with the Roman presence. Uh, the main difference between them, I think, is in the outcome. At the end of the the first revolt, uh, you you definitely have a lot of death, a lot of bloodshed. Uh, it's sort of a reckoning. Um, but at the end of the second of the Bar Kokhba, that essentially ends the major Jewish um, presence in the Levant. And by that, I don't mean that everyone's dead. I mean that as a um, mover and shaker, as a, as a force to be considered and to be dealt with, um, it, it in some ways kind of disappears. Right. And so at that point on, it, it's, the, it's the Roman show. And the Romans, if I remember correctly, they get rid of the name Judea too, right? They are consciously trying to erase this kind of, as they see it, these these crazy religionists who refuse to live with other religions. Right, right. And and it's interesting. And there's a, so much has been written about it. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the most discussed things in ancient history that the Roman and Jewish dynamic, right? Um, so there's, you know, there's not a lot new to say about it. What I would, what I would point out is that generally speaking, if you were to take a college course on this, the general thrust is, is that there's a level of toleration uh, from the Romans to the Jews. And I'm sure the Jews didn't see it that way, right? But as we try to look back and say, 
you compare how the Romans treated the Jews in the regions compared to, say, the Christians, right, where there was a much higher level of intolerance early on. Um, one narrative that is often told is that there's a grudging, okay, we'll try to live with these people, but as time wore on, that just wears off steadily. And so you end up with these, uh, these disasters, frankly, for, for the Jewish population. And after the, th the second century and into the third century, um, the complexity of the region really changes uh, because now you have this dominant Roman control over the area, which, which you had before, but now it's, it's solidified even more. Um, but once you get to the early 300s, you have the coming of Christianity to Rome. And that's where the story of Jerusalem really starts to change in definite ways. Yeah, and I think you brought us to a, a good transition point. Um, we have seen Jerusalem rise as a, a Jewish center, but now we have a, a kind of a competing religion with the rise of Christianity in the same city. So once we transition in these early centuries of Christianity in the Roman Empire, how does the character of Jerusalem change with the coming of Christianity? Uh, fundamentally, I think. It's... It's still a place where, by and large, the Jewish community is going to be locked out. Uh, but they're going to be locked out for different reasons. Uh, and this is where you get into you know, the situation where in history it looks like, okay, so the Romans remain in control. And sure, they have a new religion, but you know, they, whatever, they were in Jerusalem before, and so not much has changed. right? But, but Christianity really does change a lot. Uh, because uh, as the, the stories go, um, Helena, the mother of Constantine, comes to Jerusalem and discovers the tomb of Christ. And discovers inside of that uh, inside of that tomb uh, the crucifixes that purportedly he was crucified on along with the two criminals right um, so you found Calvary you found the tomb and that that changes all sorts of things because now it's going to become an important Christian site uh, politically because the Christianity helps bolster the, the kind of the bona fides of the, the ruling family um, but also in terms of um, popular devotion and piety because pilgrims will now start to want to come to Jerusalem, right? And in other ways, it starts to change the narrative of, of what has happened. Because as I mentioned, so you've got, you have the Jewish presence tolerated in some ways by the Romans, but but repressed in others. Um, and then the, the destruction of these Jewish communities, right? The Christian view is going to be very different. They're going to start to look at the Romans as um, sort of a good thing, right? In particular, in the days of Helena, but even after the so-called fall of the Western Roman Empire, as Rome is degrading and transitioning away, you will have the, the thought that, that maybe all of these things happened for a reason. And by the time you're in the, the 5th and 6th centuries, you start to get this discussion of why it was that Christians now have control of this city. How did this happen, right? Christians didn't have armies. They didn't come along and, um, and, and conquer the city. What happened is Christianity worked its magic inside the Roman Empire. The emperor converts, everyone else around him converts, and so you sort of, you grab this existing military force and, and now it's Christian, right? And what did that Christian force do? Well, it, it recovered Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is the ruins of, as the theologians put out, of the old covenant between the Jews and Yahweh, right? And all of this starts to take on a, a theological tenor, but also one of a sinister character, really, uh, where the idea is, is they're going to be reading the Gospel of Matthew, and they're going to be saying things like, well, who put Jesus to death? The Jews. The Jews, for putting Jesus to death, should be punished by the loss of their temple. That's what the Romans did. They were carrying out the will of God. So Titus now becomes like a divine messenger, right? Yeah, he's no longer the, um, you know, the, the, this murderous general. He's actually the hand of the hand of God, right? Who drove the Jews out and ushered in a period so that now the people of the new covenant, Christians, could come and cling and, and, and grab their place. So this operates on a number of um, concepts that have been studied a lot more in the past 20 years. Um, these uh, concepts of what we call anti-Judaism, the um, what some people call, would call a disinheritance theory, the idea that because of this role uh, in the death of Jesus, the Jews have, have surrendered their inheritance. Um, and on the other side of that, the so-called blood libel, uh, the idea that not only were they punished for their role with Jesus with the destruction of the temple, but they're going to be punished forever, right? So every bad thing that happens from this point forward, um, there's a reason for that. And so what changes is it's not just physical possession of the city. Now you get these ideas built into the actual liturgy of the Catholic Church by Pope Gregory the Great. Um, a day of 
whereas the Jews would mourn the loss of the temple um, with a day of mourning, the, the Christians now celebrate it with a, with a, with a day on the, on the liturgy to remember, oh, this was the great day that the temple was destroyed because it means that we got it, right? And it's at that time, and so it's really over a stretch of time. I don't think there's any one moment, but if you're talking the, the fourth century, the fifth century, into the sixth century, right? Um, you've got this, this new notion that the city is ours. It's our destiny. It has always in some way or another kind of been ours. Uh, and that leads to a whole different look about what this city now means. Because if it's supposed to be a Christian city, uh, and you got it because this other religion supposedly failed. And that's a whole different lens to look at the world through. Mm -hmm. Taking a look at something, too, which is fascinated from the city that has been a military and political objective throughout millennia. And yet, as you pointed out, it's really not in a great spot. Now, there are some cities which have these famous sieges, like Constantinople, which withstands dozens. Vienna, which has its uh, history. Has, but Jerusalem seems to change hands very, very frequently in military uh, circles. So you can kind of, can you kind of, kind of connect this religious significance with its military significance, and kind of put those two together. Because over the next, as the Roman Empire degrades, you see the Muslims come in, you see the Crusaders come in, you see the Muslim reaction to it. It, it seems to be this military objective throughout its history up to its present day and yet as you pointed out it's kind of in a bad spot yeah well it's you know it's in a bad spot it depends on what you mean by sort of strategic position right it's it's not on the major major trade routes so it's you know to, to get commerce running there can be difficult the population through the middle ages is always on the smaller side it's never going to be this huge um, bustling city like Cairo or Damascus where you know and I would add Damascus gets attacked far more times than Jerusalem does, right? But um, it's never going to be that. But on the other hand, it is kind of a place that, that sits off the beaten path, right? So if you have armies marching up and down uh, the Jordan Valley, the Levantine Coast, these sorts of places, it is a place of s somewhat secure. You have to pass through the mountains to get to it. It's surrounded by a rugged landscape. Uh, because it's not very well watered, um, that means that it, it helps you if you are defending against a siege, right? Because the attackers are always going to have not enough food, not enough water. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's dry desert climate, you know, with, um, um, temp, you know, temperatures and everything that comes with that. So it is a useful place to have a throne because you can sort of hang out off the beaten path and rule and you can send your armies to the other places, right? Um, so it does have some usefulness, I suppose, but I think it's the religious significance that builds into that. I mean, that's great, but you could tick off other cities that have that advantage as well, right? Uh, you could try to claim Damascus and hang out in Damascus and do the, you know, similar things, right? Or further north, you could talk about a place like Aleppo. Uh, you could definitely go inland and have that advantage. So there has to be something else with this, right? That religious aspect becomes very important. Now, what I will point out is, it becomes important at different stages. For the Jewish community, as I said, it's been important for forever, right? Um, for the Christian community, it always had a place because of the story of Jesus, but then once Rome is Christianized, fourth century, now that starts to go up, right? There's a big argument about when it becomes important for Muslims. There's the assumption has always been that Muslims revered the place because it was the first Qibla. It was the first place that Muslims directed their prayers towards uh, because the Prophet Muhammad supposedly took his night journey there and, um, and, and, and landed on the Temple Mount. And so you would pray in that direction, right? And so the assumption was, oh, it must be an important city for Muslims. Very soon after um, the Prophet's death, prayers are redirected towards Mecca. Right? It kind of loses that. And then you end up in this weird period where, where the, the Muslim community, here I, I really shouldn't say Muslim, I should say Arabs here, because it really is the Arabs doing the driving at this point. Um, there's a notion that this is an important place, but how important is it? We know Muhammad walked here. 
okay, any place he walked is, is obviously important, but it's not as important as Mecca. It's not as important as Medina, um, but but it does seem to be important. And so in the 8th century, you're, you, the Arabs will build these um, commemorative buildings, the Shrine of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the, 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 the structures, the, the dome, the structure we see today and the Al-Aqsa, which collapsed and was rebuilt several times. Um, it takes on this significance, but even then, Arabic scholars will point to, if you look in the centuries after that, it's, it's kind of a muted importance, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's there, we need it, but it doesn't really become the centerpiece uh, until you get to the 11th century, and especially in the 12th century when you start talking about the resurgence of jihad, and then all of a sudden, the meaning of Jerusalem like pops up, and it's, it's, it's almost night and day. Um, so there's different times where these religions attach to the city, uh, but I think I think that's the current that runs throughout. Without that, um, the, the story is very, very different. So it starts almost as a tactical or an operational level objective in its early history. And then as the meanings of religious significance get kind of encrusted onto the city, it becomes this major strategic objective. Yeah. Is that a good way to put it? I, yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. The um, it was you know it's a target. It was always a target. You know you want it. You don't want the other guy to have it. Um, it's it it poses a danger uh, certainly if if the other the other guy does have it. Um, but yeah, later on the, the strategic significance of it becomes uh, quite profound, um, and so much to the point that it it almost starts drawing people's attention away too much, right? The First Crusades, for example, if you look at the, the First Crusade and the Third Crusade, and those are the main ones aimed at Jerusalem, right? Um, they have to get the holy city back. It is all about Jerusalem, right? That is the centerpiece of everything. But on the Fifth Crusade, it's not. Because they've come to the realization that we keep trying to get Jerusalem, but what we know is that as long as Egypt is out there and has these huge armies and all of this wealth, we can grab Jerusalem, but we'll never hold it. So the real center of gravity here is Egypt. And you start to see crusades aimed at Egypt instead. It was supposedly Richard the Lionheart's, um, well, even before him, you had uh, King Amalric who was um, invading Egypt. But, but Richard, it was his idea that if I ever get to do this again, uh, maybe we take Egypt first, right? Because Egypt is really the strategic point we need to hold. And once we do that, we get everything else, right? And so it's this interesting, they, they, they're aimed at Jerusalem at first, and then they don't aim at Jerusalem. Um, and so what is strategically more important, really? From the West, if you're sitting in France and you look at a map and, and you say, you got to get the holy city. You have got to get the holy city. That is everything. The commanders start to realize that's not what everything is. We need to go try other other methods. So you've, you've painted a vivid picture for us of Jerusalem as the object of contention between first secular authorities and Jews, and then add Christians to that mix. And then over time, we have a divergence between Christians, the, the Byzantines or the Eastern Roman Empire, eventually the, the Western Christianity uh, that evolves. And then we have Muslims, and of course you have divergence of Muslim groups. Mm -hmm. So as the city is changing hands, as it is being traded back and forth, um, Walk us through the, the streets of medieval Jerusalem. What is the city like? What's it like to live there? You know, it's there's a couple different ways to approach that. I mean, one way is to is to go there today and walk through. And I think you get a, a good sense of kind of what it's like because the uh, the streetscape in many ways is the same. I mean, one of the oldest streets that we, um, um, in Jerusalem, the Cardo, still sort of runs there and you, you can see what it looks like. Um, it's a city that's, that's I think, a little dark. Uh, you know, it's got the walls around it. It has the tight alleyways. Um, it has tunnels. Um, one thing most people don't know when they first go there is that you are often underground as you're moving through, uh, as the city's kind of been built up above. Uh, tight um, um, confines, you know, passageways where you, you can't necessarily see around the corner. Uh, and all of that broken up into distinct kind of little uh, quarters, as they call them, little districts, right? Um, so it's a, it's a crowded place. It's a, um, today, I think, personally, in some ways, a somber place, a serious city, uh, as opposed to, um, say, Rome, where you're kind of wandering in the open, these, these large sidewalks, you know, and street vendors and things. I actually found very few places to sit cafe-style on the side of the street in Jerusalem. 
so it's it's it, it's a little confined, um, but there's there's something marvelous and beautiful about it at the same time. If you look at the travel accounts from the Middle Ages, you get all different sorts of things. We have several Christian, uh, Jewish, and Muslim uh, travel logs. They're, they're kind of um, some of them we, we call them itineraries. So some of them are if you ever go to Jerusalem. First go here, then go here, and then you'll see this, and then you'll see this. But others are, are kind of more personal, where they'll be wandering through and they'll say, um, you know, I went back to the city of my birth, and I wandered, and here's what I saw. Some of them are, oh, woe is me, right? Um, and, and take your pick. Um, uh, Muslim worship is not as prominent as it should be. There are Christians everywhere. There are Christians everywhere. You need to um, take a look at the activity in the mosques. In the schools, where are the scholars? No one's dealing with this. No one's doing this. We're being repressed by the locals. So sometimes you get that where it's dreary, right? Um, the cityscape is not good. The population is down. Uh, the economy seems to be poor. People are living in fear and loathing and all this sort of stuff. But then you read other ones from other times that are basically um, just just uh, basking in the enjoyment. <clears throat> I read one by a, a Muslim traveler um, who says, you know, in the, and the, the, the baskets of fruit and, and the sunshine and the glorious uh, words I hear in prayer and the, the bustle of the community and all this stuff. And you say, wow, that, that sounds like a really great place, right? Uh, and so one of the things I've tried to look at in my, in my research is it's, it's not a static city scene, right? Over the course of several centuries, some years are, are good years. Some years are bad years, right? I mean, walking through New York City in the early 1980s is a lot different than walking through New York City in 2008, right? It's, it's just a different look. It's a different feel. There's a different vibe going on. Um, so I think it's at sometimes um, it, it, it seemed like a very nice place. Uh, and as I would argue, um, a place where you actually have um, diversity of faith communities, uh, a sort of grudging tolerance of different ways, different practices, um, where all of that is okay, we, we, we sort of live together. And then other times where a bit more intolerance and, you know, and a lot of um, people upset about the, the, the other people who are there sort of getting in their way and, and taking over their buildings. Um, so a real diversity of experience, I think. But I would also stress small, right? And one thing we know about medieval Jerusalem, it is never a huge overflowing city. 10,000, 20,000 people, Maybe 30,000 at its height, and sometimes less than ten thousand. It's it's not a massive bustling place. It is not a medieval Cairo, and it's certainly not a Baghdad. One of the interesting things that struck me as uh, I was kind of doing some reading on it ahead of time is we look at the medieval uh, Jerusalem is uh, supremely important during the Crusades, and then it seems to kind of almost disappear after a little bit uh, once the Ottoman Empire kind of uh, uh, cements control over the region. You just kind of see Jerusalem disappear almost from uh, a lot of the, the records. It's there, but it doesn't seem to be in the forefront of a lot of discussion really almost until the end of the First World War. Is that an appropriate uh, take on it, or are we missing something? Well, it depends on who's talking, right? From a Western perspective, I think, falls off the map a little bit. Um, the and, and it coincides with the... I don't want to say the ending of the Crusades, but that's, that's controversial. Um, but the ending of the formal campaigns you see to the region to liberate it, you, crusading itself remains a phenomenon and manifests in other, other ways. Um, but once those formal crusades come to an end, yeah, um, the Christians are not getting the city back. You're not getting it back. It's a Muslim city. And so it's going to start in certain ways fading in the literature. Uh, in other ways, not. It, it remains there, but but in terms of the you know, the massive, you know, let's let's get soldiers together and let's go save it, right? It's there's a realization that it's not going to happen. The Knights Templar, as an order, are suppressed. Um, the Knights Hospitaller retreat to island fortresses. Uh, you have this kind of general pulling back of Western political interest, right? And so after that, yeah, it's a um, it's a it's a Muslim game, and, and as you mentioned, it's a Turkish game. Uh, but by the time you get to the Ottomans, right? But if you read Ottoman literature and if you read Jewish literature, it's very much still on everybody's docket, 
right? They're still very interested in what's going on in the city um, and what uh, restrictions are, are there and what tolerances are allowed. Um, a, a common example you hear is it was an Ottoman emperor who granted um, the Jews permanent rights to pray at the Western Wall. Right. Um, so and, 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 and not just one Ottoman emperor, but you have several kind of giving those rights. Um, so it's still very much a topic. But, yeah, geopolitically, it, it sort of falls off the map. Right. Um, and frankly, it, yeah, it doesn't really emerge until, you know, 19th century and into World War One. But even then. Right. Uh, if you talk about you know, General Allenby or somebody right, coming around, it's it still has that kind of symbolic importance. Um, but strategically, you have to wonder. You know how important is this place? Yeah, because in World War One, the British were attacking through this region, but they were headed to Damascus. They weren't mm -hmm. really Jerusalem was kind of a neat, hey, let's go there, yep. but that wasn't where they were aimed. Right, and you have to remember. I mean, Jerusalem gets all the press because it's Jerusalem, right? Um, everyone going to church has heard of Jerusalem. Everyone going to mosque has heard of Jerusalem, the temple, right? Um, Damascus, much bigger, much more um, economically important. Baghdad. Baghdad in, you know, when the, when the um, Mongols take Baghdad in 1258, they reportedly sack the city and kill a million people. Now, I don't know if those numbers are right. Everybody argues about it. Clearly, there are hundreds of thousands of people living in Baghdad. And you hear these um, remarks about it being this great cosmopolitan center and this, you know, everyone from around the world is coming here. You hear similar things about Cairo, Alexandria before that. There, there's so many centers. And even uh, in the region we call Israel today, you look at places like Tiberias um, and, uh, and Tyre and Beirut. I mean, these are, these are the bustling centers, right? And so it stands to reason that even in the later period, right, the, um, those are, are still some of the bustling centers. And so that's where you're, you're going to be aimed at. Yeah. Jerusalem does have that significance, though. And it's interesting when, um, you know, because the, the, the Kaiser visited Jerusalem in the 19th century, right? Uh, Allenby comes to Jerusalem. Uh, and the idea is when they get there, there's a lot of um, stopping and thinking about, well, how do I enter the city? Should I enter on foot? Should I ride a horse? Should I come in through this gate? Because you know who came in through this gate? You know, this guy did back in, in, in centuries past. And so you can see there's the significance of the place is interesting. But again, it's that it's that kind of significance, not the, not the military. You know. What's fascinating is that even in 1967, when Israel is attacking outward, uh, they're attacking the Sinai, they're attacking the Golan Heights, and they're attacking on the West Bank. Israel's, or not Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem is the third objective. Mm. They're attacking in the Golan first, they're attacking the Sinai, and then they're attacking in Jerusalem. Is you think there's a reason behind that? Well, if you're, I mean, it's it's a different. By the time you get to 1960s, it's a, it's a radically different um, framework, I think. The um, because you're talking about a Jerusalem that is is not owned by the Israelis, right? And they're looking to acquire the city for themselves, right? Um, and you're being attacked on two fronts. And those kind of those um, you know attacks in the Golan across the Sinai, you know, they're converging, right, almost down to Jerusalem. Um, so I think it's very different, a very different story in the 20th century. Once you get into the um, the, the founding of the state of Israel. Uh, I think Jerusalem takes on a very, very different uh, significance than the things I've been describing, right? Uh, and this is why you'll, if you pick up books to read about um, Israeli-Arab conflict, these sorts of things, they tend to focus on late 19th into the 20th century. They, they laser focus on that because there you're talking about Zionism, you're talking about the United Nations, you're talking about something I think is very different. The Jerusalem that I study you don't have those kinds of uh, pressure points the way you do in, in, in the modern world, right? Um, so Jerusalem is important, but it's not considered the basis of, um, of the, the Ottoman state, right? They have their own capital, right? They, they have their own major cities of commerce and importance. Uh, and at their height, we're stretched to this massive extent where they're, you know, even in the 17th century, they're, they're still taken on Europe writ large, right? Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a totally different story. You look at it today, you say that, boy, it seems like the epicenter of, of, of all kinds of controversies. Um, and all the time before that, yeah, it was controversial and it was a point of contention. But, um, but I think today, if you were to hop in a cab, 
somewhere in the Middle East and just bring up, say, oh, how, how about Jerusalem? You would get a, a very lively discussion with whoever the driver is, right, about all kinds of um, you know, flashpoints, uh, whereas I, I'm not sure you get that um, in the 15th century. I think you maybe get a nice discussion, and, and, and that might be about it. So you, you mentioned your um, particular research, and, and uh, among many other aspects of medieval history, you are a Crusades historian. So you mentioned as well that Jerusalem is the target of the First and Third Crusades. So could you give us a little bit of detail on that? Uh, I think we understand why Jerusalem, but could you walk us through those Crusades a little bit? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, so the, um, the First Crusade obviously is, is the, the center point. The, uh, when people talk Crusades, they're, they're talking the First Crusade. Uh, easily uh, written about more than... I think you could argue it's written about more than the other Crusades combined. I'm, I'd be surprised if I was wrong in asserting that. Um, that. There's all kinds of explanations as to why the First Crusade broke out. I'm certainly not going to solve them here. Um, there are you know, eight, nine, ten different explanations about what caused it. Um, what we know is that it seems that Jerusalem factored in in some kind of a major way in the thinking about it. Over the course of the 11th century, the idea that the city had fallen into hands of the infidel and that it would be good for Christendom to reclaim it, to get it back, right? Now, the intensity of that, who is saying that, where they're saying that, when they're saying that, um, and for what reasons, endless debate. But what we see is that in time, it does coalesce into this attitude that, that maybe Jerusalem needs saving. Right? And that's on the one hand in the West. In the East, you have the Byzantine emperor who is playing his own part, Alexis Komnenos. As the Seljuk Turks are folding in on his empire, as he is losing territory in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, uh, he needs help, and he consistently reaches out to the West looking for military assistance. Right? And it used to be thought that, um, oh, well, you know, he issues this, this call for help and the West responds by sending a massive army. What we know now is that he is cultivating the great magnates of the West, making lots of promises and um, holding out the carrots specifically that, you know, if you come over here and help me, if you send, uh, if you're a count and you send uh, 200, 300 soldiers to help me, uh, while you're out here, you realize that uh, you know, maybe you could get Jerusalem back while you're here dangling that carrot. So there's a big fight over what is the main driver? Is it because the Byzantines are dangling the carrot of Jerusalem? And that kind of sparks the interest. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I heard about that in church. You know, I, I think I could go, I could go save Jerusalem, be a great warrior for God. Maybe. Is it the papacy who has been kind of ginning up ideas of saving the Holy Land for, at that point, several decades? Is it a combination of that and all sorts of other little factors? My answer usually to my students is yes, 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 and yes, right? If you say this is a cause of the First Crusade, it probably was. Finding the primary cause is the huge fight. Um, and I don't know that that will ever be settled. Um, but at any rate, the First Crusade does set out and does orient itself towards Jerusalem uh, and eventually gets there in 1099 and takes the city. That said, some of the Crusaders, and again, this bedevils the analysis, some of the Crusaders never actually make it to Jerusalem um, because they choose not to. They splinter off and they say, for example, uh, Bohemond of uh, Toronto, you know, I don't need the holy city. I'm going to claim the city of Antioch for myself. And, and that's frankly good enough. Antioch is this big city also with an ancient history. Good enough for me. And, and, and he's, he's, not, he's not part of the crew that, that attacks Jerusalem. Um, so even then the question is, okay, Jerusalem's important. We want it. How critical is it? And that first crusade does get it back, uh, and it's interesting. I was, I was mentioning to Bill earlier the uh, the change in Muslim attitudes, right? Once Jerusalem is back in, in Christian hands, you start to see kind of slowly at first, uh, but then it starts to really percolate in the 12th century. All these Muslim writers start lamenting the fate of Jerusalem, especially the poets, right? The idea that we have to reclaim Jerusalem for Islam, and any major leader gets that pressure put on them. In Syria first, it's Nur al-Din, the idea you must um, unify the Islamic people and rescue Jerusalem, right? When he dies, Saladin, 
the next prominent leader after him, it, that falls on him too. It's your job to liberate Jerusalem. You have to go and do it. Uh, and so in 1187, Saladin does. He gets Jerusalem back, which means that the Christians only held it for 88 years over that stretch. Uh, and then the third crusade uh, is launched in response to Saladin. He had taken the holy city, and so the cry goes up in the west. Even before Jerusalem fell, they were, they were screaming about this. Um, we, we've got to do something. We've got to do something. And so the third crusade is launched to, to get Jerusalem back from Saladin. So to win back what we had won back several generations before. Uh, and uh, unfortunately for the Christians, the third crusade uh, does not get Jerusalem. And there's a very interesting couple moments during the third crusade where Richard, and by this I mean Richard the Lionheart, the, the famous crusading king of England, has two opportunities to march on Jerusalem and attack it, two separate opportunities. And both times he declines. And he ends up leaving the Holy Land without even trying to besiege the city. Right? So that sets up the whole question. You say, okay, Richard conquered a lot of the Levant. He grabbed an awful lot of cities back. He, he made huge um, gains. He pushed Saladin around, even defeated him in battle once, twice really. Um, is that a success? Is that a successful crusade? Because you can say you 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 know you went out there and you um, you fought and you did well and you you demonstrated to Saladin that that you know that you're no slouch and you took out all this land for Christianity. That's great, but you didn't get the holy city. So what does that mean? Is it a failure? Is it a success? Is it a relative success? And uh, and sometimes scholars will you know just kind of argue with each other about whether you consider it a success or not. Uh, Richard's the great crusading king who did not achieve his ultimate objective. And the question is, is by the time you get to 1192, how much does that really matter to not have Jerusalem in your hands? It matters. It certainly matters. But how much does it matter? Did he leave behind the reasons why he chose not to take those opportunities? Was it merely military decision process? Was it political? Or yes and yes? Um, I, I, I lean towards more, more military in a sense, I suppose. Um, the, the factors that lead him from doing it are um, he claims that the, the, his army is too small to invest the city walls. Um, I forget the exact number of his army by the time he makes the march. It's something like 11,000, 12,000 soldiers. Right? The First Crusade did it with the same amount, so that's kind of a shallow claim. Right? I can't do it now. Of course, they weren't fighting against Saladin, so you know it's, it's a little different. But um, so numbers, uh, number two, lines of communication and sustainment. As I mentioned, you have to, to get to Jerusalem. You have to leave the coastline. You have to march into the mountains. Even today, if you drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there's one principal road in and out. Right? You stretch your army along that line. You are begging to have your lines cut. Right. And so that's a, a, a difficult operational um, con consideration. And he argues with it about um, with his subordinates about whether that's a good idea or not. And then the third is the weather. Uh, the weather turns foul. And you say, OK, I'm, I'm stretched thin. I don't think I have enough people. And the weather is absolutely terrible. Doesn't seem like the best time to attack a city. Um, the, the savvy thinking, I think, on Richard and this was established 20 years ago, uh, is that he knew the whole time that this wasn't going to work. And he sort of had to convince his subordinates that he was right and they were wrong. And they keep urging him, but we have to go. But we have to go. He said, fine, we'll go. We'll do a little march. We'll march along. And then as soon as they start marching and they start to see, whoa, our line is really vulnerable. Oh, is it now? Right? Man, we, I don't know. The weather's really... Is the weather really? Is it bad? Is it? Right? You almost get him like he's grinning behind his... Uh, if he has a, you know... Um, uh, a helmet on. He's sort of grinning behind and saying, I knew that already. I just had to convince you fools that I was right. Um, and so in the end, it's I think it's pr predominantly military considerations. There is politics wrapped into it, and the bishops are there, and they're urging him in different ways. But you're saying a triumph of practicality over ideology. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And his reputation, frankly, survives it. Um, if you go to Parliament Square in London, whose statue is right in front of Westminster Hall, it's Richard the Lionheart, right? Um, he has oddly not suffered from failing to capture Jerusalem. He's still regarded as one of England's great warrior kings. One of the great points of contention, controversy, and, and I would suggest probably misunderstanding in popular culture is the treatment of Jerusalem's residents by the conquerors, both the crusaders and the um, anti-crusaders. So could you walk us through a little bit how that worked when these competing religionists got a hold of the cities? 
Yeah, it's this is the sort of the dark side to all of this, right? And you can talk about campaigns and importance of the city and religious symbolism and all this this kind of stuff. Um, but there were uh, some massacres of the inhabitants after the conquest, and and that's where it kind of gets the the stain on its reputation. Uh, if you look at in, in, the, in the first siege that I, that I really researched in, in 614, when the Persians take the city, there's a massacre of the Christian population, right? In 1099, there's a massacre of the Muslim and probably at least a part of the Jewish population. Um, in 1187, uh, Saladin gets this reputation for sparing the, the Christian population of Jerusalem. He enslaves them and there's a mass rape of its women, but, but he technically doesn't kill them. Uh, and then in 1244, um, the Khorasmians show up and they massacre all of the Christians in the city. So you have these moments of, um, of, of great, great death and, they, and they, look, they look bad, right? I think today, the only one that's looked at with any kind of severity is the sack in 1099 by the first crusaders. Um, one of the things I've, I've, I've played with in my research is to try to find out why this is. Um, it's certainly not a good thing. The Crusaders spill over the walls. They, they, you know, they get through the, um, through the gate um, in the south, and they essentially fight through the streets and shove all the defenders back into the Temple Mount where they're then all eliminated to the tune of some 3,000 people. Uh, and then the next day there's a, um, a killing of a further 300 more at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Right? That is, is looked at as, I, I think, the original sin of the Crusades. Um, that that is the, the low moment. That's, that's, that's the bad time. That's, that's the nadir. Um, there is an argument about whether or not there was a, another massacre on the heels of that, the so-called uh, Third Day Massacre, because there is some evidence to suggest that there might have been more killing afterwards. And one chronicler writing later claims it was up to 10,000 people. If that's true, then you're, you're basically liquefying the, the entire city, right? Um, the jury is still out about whether or not that third day, you know, um, uh, massacre happened. I know there's if some crusade historians listening to me right now are like, Hostler's an idiot. How can you possibly deny it? And others are saying, mm -hmm, yeah, I have my doubts too. It's, it's one of those fraught, you know, territories. So clearly that, you know, that, that's seen as a bad thing. Um, the other massacres not looked at in quite the same way, right? So I'll give you an example. So there's one in 1077, uh, where the, um, the general Atsiz comes to town. He's a Sunni Muslim, and uh, Jerusalem is being held by the Shia. And he comes into Jerusalem because the, the Shia had revolted and had imprisoned his family. And so he comes and he kills 3,000 of them, right? That's the same number of people that the Crusaders killed, right? I know medievalists who don't even know that this attack happened. I mean, these are people who study the Middle Ages and they have no idea there was a massacre in Jerusalem in 1077. Don't even know. Right. Uh, or people who study the late period who have no idea that the Persians once um, committed, you know, uh, th these deaths inside the city um, or don't even know about the um, these. Um, I suppose you would call them sort of radical Sunnis, the Khorasmians who show up in 1244, um, that they come in and they, they not only uh, kill all the residents of Jerusalem, probably more people in total than the Crusaders did, uh, but they destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, you know, they take out all these Christian sites. Right. Uh, so there are all these, these moments where bad things happen after conquest and they get all the press or at least one of them gets all the press. Right. The question I ask is and I've asked over the past three years is do those massacres reflect the story of Jerusalem? Is that the story of Jerusalem? One of, you know, when we think about it, and honestly, if you pull people off the streets, you know, what do you know about the history of Jerusalem? It's probably going to be something about, you know, holy city, major religions, blood, death, violence, war, awful things, right? Constant conflict, all kinds of oppression, uh, political consternation, you know, the, the crisis in the Middle East. That that's, tends to be what they say, right? And so my question is, is do those massacres accurately reflect that? Well, what I found is, so I named for you uh, five times that um, you have a, a mass killing in Jerusalem, right? That's over the course of 600 years, five times. Jerusalem is conquered 14 other times in that same period. There's 19 medieval conquests of Jerusalem. 14 other times the city is taken and you get none of this. You don't get massacres. You might have a group of people rounded up or you might have some some, um, you know, interpersonal ramifications and, you know, and, you know, mistakes are made and bad things happen. But but you don't have wholesale slaughters. Right. Generally, when it changed hands, it was peaceful. 
Uh, and, and that ought to raise questions with us when we start to say, okay, well, oh, you know, the Crusades were horrible things, and I'm not saying that they weren't, um, or that this was a horrible time or this was a horrible time. Yeah, yeah. I would argue over the course of 600 years, you take any civilization, and you're going to find horrible times, right? So I think the difficulty is, is how do you talk this history and talk rationally <coughs> and historically about a military event that took place that resulted in a tragic loss of life while separating it from the tremendous religious significance that we've been discussing this whole time, right? And being able to look at it as dispassionately as you can. I think it's really hard to do that. And because it's hard to do that, um, the history of Jerusalem remains the specter of one of just, some ways just awfulness, right? Um, where we've in a sense lost the bigger story by concentrating on these moments. Right? Now, the rejoinder to that, of course, is some of these moments were really bad. And, and I would say, yes, they absolutely are. Right. Uh, so there's a tension there. How do you how do you treat the history? Do you um, let the big events dictate everything uh, you center on? I suppose it would take, uh, you know, if you took American history and just said, we're just going to talk about those really bad flashpoints and none of the stuff in between, um, then you would you would miss all kinds of things. Let's talk about the Civil War and World War One and forget everything that goes in between. But there's an awful lot of history just in those few decades. Here we're talking about entire centuries elapsing where you have essentially peace. Over the course of the Middle Ages, Jerusalem is by and large a peaceful city. So a, a follow-up to that answer. This is a question, as you mentioned, that perhaps is more fraught in the, the 20th and 21st centuries than it might have been in the medieval period or before. So how does a researcher go about these issues in the city and around the city, both academically and physically, given the fraught and, and often emotional nature of the way people react to the subject? Yeah, it's this is hard, right? Um, People are invested in this, and they should be invested in this story, right? It, it does have a lot of meaning. Uh, and so how to talk about that and how to examine that is really tricky. Uh, I think the best thing a historian can do, saying that this as a historian and not a political scientist, not a sociologist, uh, not a politician or policymaker or diplomat or ambassador, right? They all have very different ways of looking at this, right? Um, Good historical method requires that we read sources and, in my field, look at things like archaeology. Right? You look at the evidence, you read the sources, and you let it lead you to a conclusion, right? that you don't impose a reading upon it. If you can do that and if you can explain how you're doing it as you go along, here is a source I found. Here are the qualities of the source. It's a poem. It was written in the 8th century. It was written by an Armenian, right? Um, the Armenian seems to have been a Christian. And you go through, here's what the source is, right? Here are the problems with the source, right? He wasn't a local. We don't know his name. He makes some wild outlandish claims in, in parts of the poem. Okay, the document has some good qualities, has some bad qualities. We admit them all. Now here's the information that it tells us. Here's the info. Okay, these are the facts scrutinize the facts. Can we trust these facts? Are they verifiable through other sources, right? And you go through that whole process and then say, given all of this, this is the conclusion that I draw, understanding that I might be wrong, right? And I think if you follow that good historical method, right, and you don't impose anything on it, you don't go looking for the story that you want to pull out, um, then I think that puts you on better ground when you end up discussing the, the sensitive stuff. At some point, the temptation is to make the turn into the, the ethical discussion and start to say, okay, I want to render a judgment on that. And that's where historians start to get into very fraught territory, right? Um, where sometimes our readers almost want us to render that judgment. And if we don't, it's like, well, you didn't, you didn't follow through, right? You didn't give me, you know, where's the beef, right? Um, and I, th I think you have to resist coming down uh, in, in favor of one thing or another. You, you say, this is my interpretation. This is what I think happened and what it meant at the time. Everything else, what it means now, right? That's not for the historian to decide. And I think that's that's been my approach to it. Um, and when I've when I've followed that and been able to follow that, um, 
I think the research has gone relatively well. Uh, where I tend to have problems is, is if in the back of my mind I've got a lurking argument, I think something's happened, and I think there's a reality that I'm going to find in the documents, and then you start looking for it. Um, and the, I think the, for me at least, after doing this historian thing for, I don't know, 25 years or whatever, um, I catch myself a lot faster now when I start going down those holes where I start imposing an argument on the past. It used to be when I was young, I would write on something for two years before I found out, oops, you know, that's, <laughs> Hostler, you're doing it wrong, right? Now I think my spider sense is a lot better and I catch myself very fast. And I think that's, that's the ethic of the historical profession. And at the end of the day, the, the history needs to be written. There's a story to be told. The work has to be done. Um, and so we shouldn't shy away from it. Um, I, I didn't want to shy away from Jerusalem, you know, and, you know, thinking, oh, here's an incredibly sensitive subject. Maybe I should find a less sensitive subject. No, I'm interested. I want to read about it. I want to learn about it. Um, you can't shy away with it, but you just have to make sure that your um, your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed um, because that you, you've got to have that, that methodological credibility. Um, there are lots of history books on Jerusalem. I... I don't know how many I found, but it's it's in the hundreds, and I, I probably have not scratched the surface. Uh, and I would say, oh, probably 70, 80 percent of them come across with with some kind of point that that ends up being overtly political or or, or religious in nature, pushing some kind of agenda. Um, and uh, and the idea is, can you research a topic like this and and avoid that? And it's it's a hard thing to do. So, what is your conclusion? What is your story of Jerusalem? My story is that I think writ large across the period that I have looked at, which is seven centuries, not a small slice of, of time, right? I think the dominant theme of Jerusalem is one of, um, to use, I guess they're going to be you know, modern hot terms, you know, tolerance and diversity. Um, and I don't mean those in their modern sensibilities. What I mean is that you've got a, a diverse community in the sense that you have lots of different ethnicities, lots of different re religious confessions uh, living together, um, and lots of persuasions of those religious confessions inside, right? I mean, you, you mentioned Christianity earlier, right? It's not just the Latin Christians, right? It's the Armenians, it's the Georgians, it's, you know, it's, there's so many different groups, right? But the idea that they, for most of Jerusalem's history, they have by and large lived together um, and tolerated each other to the extent that, well, I, I don't necessarily like that I have um, these people living in my town. There's not much I can do about it. And as long as they're here, maybe I'll trade with them. Maybe we can make some money together. Um, yeah, if I have the chance to kick them out, yeah, I might I might listen to the guy who's got an idea about that. But but most of the time, this is what it is. It's, it's a diverse, uh, pluralistic Middle East. Um, for most of Jerusalem's history, even the minority religious groups that are not in power end up having some say in how the city is run. Um, you have negotiations, for example, I found one in the 10th century of, um, of some Jewish claimants uh, and, and Jews are, are living there. They're under Muslim rule uh, and they're being taxed over much. And they appeal directly to the caliph in Egypt. They, they petition him directly and he responds and intervenes and, and essentially orders their taxes be lowered. Right. And you sit there and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're telling me that a, uh, a Shia Muslim. Uh, and this guy's name, Al-Hakimi, sort of notorious for being a little crazy uh, and violent. Um, this guy with this bad reputation actually intervened to help out some Jews against his fellow Muslims. That doesn't sound like the Jerusalem I know. And I, what I found is incident like that after incident after incident, right? These people have to live together. They have to find a way to live together. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to respect each other, but they have to live together. And I think that is the dominant theme. And I think we have lost it because we are so consumed by studying the massacres. Uh, in our modern world, and this is a much bigger subject, but I would just throw out um, something that we've, we've talked about before, certainly. The, um, the modern world does not take well to religious conflict. Uh, we see it as alien. We see it as strange, barbaric, a thing of the past that we're supposed to be beyond. Irrational. Irrational, right? Um, and, you know, we just kill each other for, for more rational things now, like political ideology, you know. Um, so I think that that's the lens the modern world looks at it. And they say, oh, Muslims killing Christians, Christians killing Muslims. It's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. And that overshadows what was really going on. Most of the story is Muslims living with Christians and living with Jews. And there's some high points and low points. There's one point where there's a traveler who goes to Jerusalem. He can only find one Jewish family, one, because the crusaders threw them all out, right? So you see one family, okay. 
Slowly that grows to four families. And then some Jewish merchants come back in, right? And then eventually they're living there again. And it's a small community, sure, but they're living there amidst the others. And I think if we if we look at that, my suggestion would be, being a historian, I said, if that's what I see, I think it's worth a look to go back and, and talk about what does that mean. If there is a trend of, um, of toleration, of religious diversity, um, maybe that has some lessons for us today in the modern world. I'm not going to tell people what those lessons are, um, but, but maybe it's worthwhile looking at. And so that's, that's what I found in my research. That it's that theme that dominates. Perhaps putting a little bit more nuance into that trope of, oh, well, people have just been killing each other for thousands of years in that area. There, there's a lot more nuance to that trope than you might expect. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it, Bill. Because um, that's what you hear, right? Oh, yeah, it's just never-ending conflict, right? No, no. Actually, most of the time, there wasn't conflict. Um, it's just when armies came marching through. And how many places in the world can we say that about? That everything was fine until the army came marching through. It's, you know, the bulk of the, the land on this planet Earth, I would suggest. All right, that was a fascinating take on an interesting and controversial subject. Dr. Hostler, thank you. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.